1 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6, Paul says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been com comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may, excuse me, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. We already left off last week was just beginning to look at the fact that Paul said he wanted to come and visit them and supply what was lacking in their faith. We ended up last week looking at the fact that in order to increase your faith, you don't need more faith. Faith is not determined by how much faith you have, or great faith or little faith is not determined by how much faith you have, but by the size of your God. And we're going to look at that in a little bit more detail tonight as well, because there's an element to this that I don't think many of us fully grasp. And i got to be honest with you, I don't fully grasp it myself, but God's helping me to start to move into it a little bit more. But we have a tendency to put too much focus on us, how we're doing, what can we do better, and Jesus is actually wanting us to move into really living in him, in trust in him, dependence on him, focusing on him, talking to him. That's why Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. He didn't say take a class about me. A lot of people, unfortunately, and there may be some of us here in this room, have gotten really good in the Christian walk of learning about Jesus. We know a lot of things about Jesus. We could tell you where he was born. We could tell you this story and that story. But do we know Jesus? I'm not asking you, do you study about Jesus when you spend time with him? I'm saying, do you talk to him? Do you know him? And as you're going to see, the more you get to know him, the more your faith will increase. It's not tied to how well you're doing. It's a focus on him. And you're going to see that as we look at this in more detail. So let's pick up where we left off. Go to Luke 17, verses 5 and 6. Just kind of a refresher of where we were when we got together last time. Again, we're looking at the fact that Paul said he wanted to help them where they were lacking in their faith. And what he means is, I want to talk to you more about Jesus. Luke 17, look at verses 5 and 6. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. So look at what Jesus is saying. They said, increase our faith. He says, you don't need more faith. It's not determined by the size of your faith. As we looked at last time, it's determined by the size of your God. And I want you to see, and hopefully the scriptures will let us see this tonight. The bigger that God becomes in your understanding of who he is. Your knowledge of him. That's why the Bible talks a lot about growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The more you get to know him. I didn't say about him. The more you get to know him, your faith will increase. Why? Because you'll see him for who he is and you'll trust that he'll be able to do the things that he said he would do. A lot of us know the promises he's made. But do we do we know him enough to know that he's going to keep them? Go to Colossians chapter 1. I want to show you just real quickly through a few places how Paul prayed and spoke to Christians about the fact that he wanted them to grow in their knowledge of Jesus. Look at Colossians 1 verses 3 through 14. Paul, writing to believers, said, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. 
Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom he, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So here Paul said, I've heard of your faith and now our prayer is that you would grow and increase in your knowledge of God. Again. I'm not against you taking a Bible study course. I'm not against you taking a discipleship class. But don't think that just reading about Jesus is how you're going to grow in your knowledge of Jesus. You've got to learn how to communicate with him. Listen to him. Let him speak to you. Being led in the spirit. Go to Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 15 through 19. You're going to hear some things that sound a lot very similar to what we just read. Ephesians 1, 15 through 19. Paul says, For this very reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of who? Of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then he goes on and he says, and you're going to see this later on tonight, he then goes on in the next verses and says, that's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. That's going to be important for us later on. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is available to us. But it's tied to a knowledge of him. If I were to ask you, is Jesus good? Is Jesus loving? Is Jesus kind? Is Jesus merciful? I'm pretty sure all of you would say yes, 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 and yes. But do you live like you believe that? Is Jesus patient? Well, I kind of hope he is with me because I really haven't really done this. And I don't know how many times I've had to ask him to forgive me. You understand what I'm saying? There's one thing to know that the Bible says he's patient. It's another thing to know that he's patient. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 again. Verses 11 through 13. Paul says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Now there's something here I don't want you to miss. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Don't miss this. Paul said, I want you guys to increase in your faith. That's only going to be tied to a greater knowledge of God in Jesus. But I'm not asking you guys to go spend more time with Jesus. I'm going to ask that God would put in your heart a desire to spend more time with Jesus. Again, we can hear this message and try to go be better at this whole thing about talking and spending time with Jesus. And many of us have taught, been taught to just, you know, if you do something for 21 days in a row, you develop a habit. And then the, the ha folks, God doesn't want you to develop a habit. He wants you to know him. We keep looking for man's ways to accomplish what only can be accomplished in the spirit. Go to 2 Thessalonians real quick, chapter 3, and look at verse 5. Whenever I, uh, someone wants me to sign one of the books that I've written, I always just put this verse. I sign my name and then write 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. I want them to go look it up. But look at what it says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. It says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. And to the steadfastness or perseverance of Christ. Folks, I want to challenge you today to start moving into a belief and an understanding of the fact that God is for you. 
He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, he, will he not also with him give us all things? And the Bible, as you're going to see, has made great, many great promises. And it's one thing for us to know about them. It's another thing to know him and to believe them. It's one thing to say, I've heard that he's this. And isn't that what Job said? I'd heard about you, but now I've seen you. And there's a difference. I'm pretty sure Paul had heard about Jesus, but then he met him and it changed his life. And if you notice Peter's walk with Jesus, he knew Jesus, he walked with Jesus, but he still had a lot to learn about Jesus, didn't he? Because even though Jesus, Peter had met Jesus and believed that he was the Christ, immediately after that, Peter thought Jesus needed his, uh, Peter's de uh, defense. He thought, Peter, Peter thought Jesus needed his counsel. When Jesus said, we're going to go to Jerusalem and we're going to go to the cross, <laughs> we're not going to let that happen. Jesus, you need some advisors. Then he thought, Peter thought Jesus needed his defense when he swung his sword in the garden. And later on, he found out that God liked the Gentiles just as much as the Jews. When Acts chapter 10, he was continually growing in his knowledge of who Jesus really is. But they were all experiences with him. And so I'm going to challenge you. Don't just learn about Jesus. Get to know Jesus. The knowledge, not about him but of him. Increased faith, by the way, according to what we just read in verses 11 through 13, will be evidenced by increased power for holy living and increased assurance of our salvation. I'm going to say that to you again. Increased faith will be evidenced by increased power for holy living and increased assurance of our salvation. Again, he said, and may the Lord, verse 12, make you increase. First Thessalonians 3, verse 12. May the Lord make you increase in and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Some of you probably know Philippians 1, 6 pretty good, don't you? He who, Paul said, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began this good work in you will finish it. We've tried to help him. I'm going to say to you, stop trying to help him and just spend time with him. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in the word. Spend time just getting to know him, letting him speak to you. And when you do, you're going to find out things about him that are going to change how you live. I've shared with you in the past and there are other areas that God's starting to work in my life as well. But there was a turning point in my life is our family financially and in our ministry was when I was finally came to a point where I was studying the word and God began to speak to my heart. And all these passages talk about me being generous. And I was like, Lord, wait a minute. You would never ask me to do something or be something that you're not. That means you're generous. And if I really believe that you're generous, it'll be easy for me to be generous because I'm not going to worry about whether or not it's going to run out. Because I believe you're going to be generous with me. And so I started to give things away financially. I, this is not, I'm just going to say this just to say this. Leave it for where it is. My wife and I, even though we live off of people's donations, we support over 15 different individuals and in, in, in ministries around the world. Because God's just put it on our heart to give it away. We just signed up automatic withdrawal this past week for a couple that is going to go do mission work in Scotland. Ran across them in one of our mission travel preaching trips and God put it on our heart to give them so much a month and take it out of our account. But this happened after I got to know who he was. Do you understand? I didn't say, well, I'm going to have to be a better Christian and we're going to try to start giving a little bit more. And we're going to try to You see, there's a difference between that and just saying, well, that's who he is. So therefore, let's just do it. And it's been amazing as we, as you know, in our ministry, give everything away. We're spending thousands, tens of thousands each month mailing books. I mailed 50 books yesterday to a church in uh, uh, Michigan, just mailed 25 today to another place in Michigan and mailed some to Canada. By the way, that ain't cheap. You gotta pay for customs and all this other stuff. And, but you know what? We're not worried about it. God's got it. God's got it. But that's because we've come to know who he is. Go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Second 
2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 11. Peter's writing to Christians and says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through what? The knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature which is within you, having already escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Now we're going to stop here real quick. Don't miss what he said. His divine power has already given you everything you need for life and godliness. Beware of the preachers that say you need a second filling. Beware of the preachers that say you need a, uh, someone come lay hands on you. You've already received all of God that you need. Everything you need for life and godliness came to indwell you when Jesus came inside of you. Colossians 2 verse 9 says that in Christ the deity lived fully in bodily form and we have received fullness in him. When Jesus came to within, live within you, everything you need for life and godliness is available to you. Now, the filling of the Spirit is a continual letting Him have control. You don't need to go and have a certain person pray for you or a special service where all of a sudden you have a certain encounter. You've already got it. Now it's a matter of learning to take hold of these divine promises. So then he says, and it's going to sound like it's on us, so stick with me. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, that's why they're in this process of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Jim, this sounds like it's up to me. I'm to make every effort now to add to my faith these things. Stop. Remember, who's the one that does the work? Well, how do we make every effort? Well, if you remember Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul said this. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, he said, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, don't miss this. You already have the one within you who's going to produce the evidence or the fruit of the Spirit. By the way, if it's fruit of the Spirit, who's doing it? The Spirit, not you. Yet God, who lives within you, will not control you like a puppet against your will. He's waiting for you to daily say no to your flesh and yes to him and believe that he will do what he wants to do. And so he's waiting for us always to just say, Lord, do it. I let you. Give me the grace. I'm going to walk in obedience to what you said, because I believe you will empower me to do whatever you ask me to do. But I'm going to do what you ask me to do, but I'm, I'm not going to try to do it in my own strength. Lord, do it. How many of us have heard the sermon on the fruit of the Spirit and thought, I need to be more patient? Good luck. You can't do it. It's a fruit of the Spirit. But you know what? There's a big difference between the Christian who is so walking closely in real relationship with Jesus, that when the situation happens, his first reaction is peace and patience versus the Christian that says, oh, I need to be patient right now. Do you understand the difference? While you're gritting your teeth. We're trying to be like Jesus. That's why I never really did like the whole, what would Jesus do bracelets? That taught us to try to do what Jesus would do. What would Jesus do in this situation? I need to do that. Hmm. What? Jesus is the one who has to do it. But do we know him enough to know and are we walking with him enough to know that actually when the situation arises, as we're spending time with him, that just naturally the right reaction will start to happen. Again, I've told you before, if you haven't done it, go get the book. It's thick, thick, little. It's a small little paperback called The Practice of the Presence of God. It was written by a monk in the 1400s, and these are just his letters to a friend as he came to realize what we're talking about. He, he loved his time of prayer alone in his prayer closet, 
But he had other responsibilities in the monastery. He worked in the kitchen. He had other things he had to do. And he hated having to leave his time of prayer to go do his other stuff. But he also then came to realize the scripture talked about praying without ceasing. But the continual communication, walking in the spirit, being led by the spirit. And so he started to practice the presence of God. If God's with me at all times, I don't have to just go in my prayer closet. I can learn to talk to him as I go. And this monk began to experience things as he just continually talked to Jesus throughout the day. And he it changed his attitude toward the people around him. The other monks that used to bug him didn't bug him as, he, as much anymore or even any at all. And actually, as he was serving their eggs, he would say in some of these letters, all of a sudden within him, and he didn't even have to work it up, was, I wonder what's, I wonder how he's really doing. I all of a sudden feel like he's lonely. And all of a sudden he had a heart for someone that normally he tried to avoid. And he didn't say, today I'm going to be good to Joe. No, as he learned to walk and talk with Jesus, Jesus started living his life through him. And he began to practice the presence of God. Paul says it this way in Galatians 5, 16. So I say, walk in the spirit. And you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Where's the focus? Walking with Jesus. We, unfortunately, when we're trying to fight sin, focus on not doing it. Or I got to work harder. Or maybe I need to put some kind of a system together to help me. No. Learn how to spend time continually spending time with Jesus. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There are such things as baby Christians. But I put in my notes, that's okay, just don't stay there. 1 Corinthians 3, look at verses 1 through 4. Paul says to them, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? One says, I follow Paul, or another, I follow Apollos. Are you not merely being human? No, was he writing to Christians or non-Christians? Christians, look closely. Are you not infants in Christ, he says in verse 1. They're in Christ. That's why if you ever looked at the letters of 1 John, in 1 John he writes, I write to you children, I write to you young men, I write to you fathers. He says that a few times. Why? Because all of us are in different levels of maturity and growing. But at the same time, as children or as teenagers or as adults, we need to be continually growing in our knowledge of Jesus. Not about him, but really getting to know him. And again, that's a process that we're all going to be in for the rest of our lives. Don't think, well, when am I ever going to get there? First off, you just started looking where? At yourself. It's, it's insidious, isn't it? Our flesh wants credit so bad. Our flesh wants credit so bad. One day we will, and I throw myself into that group, we will really believe that Jesus will do what he wants to do in our lives. But we have to spend time with him. By the way, as I said to you earlier, he wouldn't force us. You know the story of the two men on the road to Emmaus? And the whole time he was explaining about himself from the scriptures. And then when they got to the house, he acted as if he was going further. Why? Because he's waiting to be invited. In the same way, when they were, he was walking on the water and they were all freaked out and they thought he was a ghost. Once they realized it was him, he meant to pass by them. But why? He was waiting to be invited. And daily, he lives within each of us, saying, I'd love to take over, but you've got to let me. You've got to learn how to talk to me and say, Lord, this one's yours. Lord, you got this. Lord, what do you want me to say? Lord, show me how to do this. And as you begin to take the baby steps, little by little, you'll get, I hate to say it, but my grammar's bad, but you'll get gooder and gooder at it. <laughs> but it's him doing it through us. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. I've taught on this passage a lot about the responsibility of uh, the pastors to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. But there's a section in here that a lot of us have missed. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. 
It says, And he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Listen closely. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that when we, sorry, so that we may no longer be what? Children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And then it talks about how his whole body coming from his power builds itself up as as he parts does its work. But don't miss what he said. Those of us who are preachers and teachers are supposed to be teaching you how to get to know Jesus better, equipping you to do the gifts that you exercise, the gifts you've been given, so the body will minister to each other. But at the same time, we're to help you grow up into him who is the head, and then you won't be tossed to and fro by the latest doctrine. Why? Because you know Jesus. Has anybody here, and I want to show hands, I've experienced this a few times over my years. Have any of you heard stuff over the years in the church, and you didn't really know why, but something in your spirit didn't feel like it was right, but it was something that everybody's been saying for years, and it wasn't until later on that God opened your eyes, and you're like, man, I knew something wasn't right about that. I couldn't refute it. I just knew something wasn't right. You understand what I'm saying? It's because you know Jesus and Jesus lives within you and the spirit of God's within you. And a lot of times we do stuff that's always been done, say the things that have always been said. But the spirit within us a lot of times says, that's not it. As the more I came to know who he is, the more I came to recognize truth from error. But if you just follow the latest teacher and preacher, because you don't know Jesus, you know about him, but you don't really know him. And you follow whatever someone says about him, you're going to fall prey to lies. You need to know him. In verse 13, though, we go back to 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 3. Look at verse 13. Paul refers to Jesus' coming. All right, look at what he says in verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, this is actually the second reference, direct reference to the coming of Jesus in 1 Thessalonians. The first one was in chapter 2, verse 19. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. He says, For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Verse 13 of chapter 3. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Go over to chapter 4. Look at verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Go to chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, four direct references to the coming of Jesus. I'm going to make a commercial. We're about to move into a deeper study about the coming of Jesus. And that's one of the big reasons why I think God led us to deal with First and Second Thessalonians, because of how much he talks about the return of Jesus and the rapture and all these different things. And we're about to dive into that. And if you go back to verse 13, he adds something to it, though, that when Jesus comes, who's going to come with him? All his saints. We're going to deal with that. It's just a commercial. We're not going there now. But when we get to chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, we're going to really start breaking down the day of the Lord, the rapture, the return of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the coming with all his saints. But I just wanted to point that out, that four times Paul directly references the coming of Jesus. And we're going to be diving into that down the road. Now, at the same time, though, in this section here that we're still looking at, verses 12 and 13, Paul also says that God's desire is to establish our hearts blameless in holiness to prepare us for that day. And we've already touched on this. I just want to remind you of it. Who is the one who does this work? He may establish us in bl- blameless in holiness. So if he's the one that's going to do it, and if he's predestined, Romans 8, 29, to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, so that in our knowledge of him, we will all become like him in the fullness of the measure of Christ, as we just read there. What should we do? We should go say, Jesus, do it. Now, listen, 
Who gets to determine when we start seeing it and you start seeing it? He does. So a lot of us will say, all right, Jim, I'll give it a shot. All right, Jesus, produce your life in me. I believe you're in me. I believe you're going to do it. Just go ahead and do it. And then tomorrow, somebody cuts you off. <laughs> and your first reaction is not to say you're number one. You use a different finger. And you're going to say, well, I tried it. It didn't work. Ah, when you as lay your body on the altar, he gets to determine when the fruit will be produced. When you say, Lord, I trust you, but I trust you to have it done by tomorrow. <laughs> right. Who's the one who's really controlling? You are. So I'm going to ask you a question. Do you really believe Jesus will produce his fruit in you? Do you really believe that he's going to get you there to the point that he can present you with great joy? Go look at it later on. Jude 24 and 25 verses 24 and 25. Now him who is able to present us with, without spot and with great joy. It's him. Go back to uh, 1 Thessalonians 5. We only looked at verse 23. Look at verses 23 and 24. Verse 23 of 1 Thessalonians 5. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Does that mean we then just sit back and just wait until it? No, no, no. You still have to, by faith, daily surrender and believe. But at the same time, you don't determine when the fruit's produced. You just believe that it's going to be. And by the way, if you believe that he will produce this in you and you don't see it right away and you're not bothered by that fact, what fruit is now all of a sudden being produced without you even trying? Patience. Patience. Do you see it? And faith. You see what I'm saying? When you really believe he's going to do it. By the way, that's why I go back to Romans 14. You're going to get some some lanyap that the Tuesday night group didn't get. I just brought something to my mind here. Remember back when we were looking at Romans 14? Look at verse four. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul said, when you're too busy judging everybody else and whether or not you're seeing Jesus in them and all this stuff, whose master is, is who's their master? Not you. It's Jesus. Take a deep breath. He's able to finish his work. And the sooner I believe that he's able to finish his work in me, the easier it will be for me to believe that he's going to finish his work in you. That's why for years I've gone to a lot of churches and I've asked them, how many of you believe that God's not done with you yet? Raise your hand. Everybody does. And I say, leave your hands up. Leave your hands up and look around. And everybody looks around and I said, look, everybody in here is willing to acknowledge in front of everybody, God's not done with me. Then why do we treat each other like God should be done with everybody else? She really calls herself a Christian and she did this and I can't believe she acts that way and blah, blah, blah. And we attack each other on Facebook and all this stuff. Folks, we really don't believe how, how big God is. But you can't get there until you really believe that he's able to do it with you. See, when your kids are still trying to compete for your attention and you point out one daughter's dress and you say, that's beautiful. What typically happens when the other daughter hears it? What about mine? Why? Because they're still feeling like they need to compete for your attention. But when your kids really understand how you feel toward them, they have no problem if you point out your sister's dress because they know God my parents love me just as much. It doesn't bother me. that I'm glad to point out her dress. So you know what we did with our kids? I did the opposite of what most parents would do. I would intentionally say, you're now my favorite. Oh, I did it. Uh, listen closely. And God, God did such a cool work in this. Our kids would say, that's not true. Will you love us all? And I'd say, yes. And then someone else would do something. I'd say, oh, you're now my favorite. They'd say, dad, that's not true. You love us all. And then that truth started to sink in. And you know what? Our kids are so at peace with how mom and dad feel about them. They don't. They know there's no favorites. But instead of me having to say, no, we don't have favorites. We don't have worrying about how that. I actually went the other route so that the truth would sink in in their own hearts. They started preaching the truth. They started saying what was true. 
I don't recommend that as a parenting tactic. But then again, I don't recommend you follow my parenting tactics ever. But I will tell you this much, I grew up teasing my kids from day one, and our, our oldest daughter, Nicole, who's getting married in, in February, when she was five, went to kindergarten, and a boy teased her. And she looked at that little boy and said, my dad teases way better than that. And I, when she came and told that story, I was like, yes. They are ready for this world. Paul also, and everywhere in Scripture, prayed that God would cause them and us to increase in love for each other. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12. Increase in love for each other in the church and also for everyone else. Look at again at verse 12. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4. Look at verses 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Give me a break, Paul. You're bragging on our faith. And now you say you want to increase our faith because it's not enough. You're telling us we've been taught by God to love one another. And now you're saying we need to do it more. How much do you expect from us? You still don't get it if that's your attitude because you're still looking at you. Would you not agree that Jesus had a love for everyone that could be felt by everyone? Even the sinners knew this guy doesn't agree with our lifestyle, but he loves us. We feel comfortable in his presence. Is that how people feel around you? I saw a sign recently that just supposedly had been put on someone's door at Halloween this past year. And it was supposedly from a Christian family. And they had a sign on their door that said, we're not supporting your socialist satanic ritual. You, need, you guys need to stop knocking on our door and go get a job, and you need Jesus. Does that sound like Jesus? It doesn't sound like Jesus. It sounds like someone pretending to be Jesus, talking for Jesus, but it doesn't sound like Jesus. Go to Philippians chapter 1. Look at verses 3 through 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. Philippians 1, starting in verse 3. Thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in the, my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of the righteousness comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. There it is again. But you know what? Paul wasn't praying that they would do more. Paul was praying that they would get to know Jesus more. Because if you get to know Jesus more, really get to know him, not about him where you can pass the written test, but fail the driving test but really get to know him to the point that you would have an automatic love that keeps increasing. Remember how I used the illustration about you pointing out one daughter's dress and the other one goes, what about mine? Let me put it to you. You might have something you've been praying for for a while and then somebody else gets it. Are you happy for him or are you a little jealous? Pray for our kids who are wanting to be married. But as they get older and they've been pure and saving themselves and all that, and they keep seeing other people get married, yet they... When you start to say, well, when's it going to happen for me? Is it going to happen for me? How come it happens for them? Or you might compare your job. You might compare your health. You might compare your income. 
You might compare whatever, but when you find yourself looking at other things and things other people have and comparing, how come they get to have a healthy life and go on all these cruises and I have to deal with hospital issues and all these different things? How come you, when you start comparing yourself against the people around you, it's really showing you really don't believe that God's for you. I know the Bible says he's for me. I know the Bible says he's good. I know the Bible says he's just. I know the Bible says that he's, he, he, he's, he's a gracious person. But you know what? I don't feel that way. I'm not saying you're not saved, so don't hear this wrong. You don't know him. You don't know him. Have you ever put yourself in John the Apostle's shoes? Put yourself in John the Apostle's shoes for a second. He had a brother. What was his brother's name? James. They were buds. They lived together, didn't work together for their dad, did ministry together. And the Bible actually says that James was put in prison and Herod had him put to death. And when Herod saw that this pleased the Jews, he had Peter arrested and put into that same prison for him to be put to death. What did God do for Peter? He, not only released him, the chains fell off, the doors flew open. Supernaturally, he was able to just get up and walk out of that prison. And every time the church got together from that point on, it was a reminder for John that God had, had his brother put to death in the same prison he released Peter. How would you have dealt with that? When I was a pastor of a church years ago, there were two ladies that both had massive strokes at the exact same time. One ended up in the nursing home never to ever get out. And all she could say the rest of her life was just two words. Wonderful, nice. That's all. You'd say, how are you today? Wonderful, nice. Have you noticed the weather outside? Wonderful, nice. What'd you have for lunch today? Wonderful, nice. That's only two words she could say the rest of her life. And she ended up in a nursing home, totally incapacitated. Another lady, same church, same time, church member, was miraculously healed and was singing in the choir every Sunday. And that husband of the wife who was in the nursing home every Sunday had to sit and see this other lady in the choir. The only way you're going to deal with that is if you really know who Jesus is. See, a lot of us know about him, but do we know him? Oh, by the way, God knows what you really believe about him. He's not mad. He just wants you to know him. He wants you to know him. This love for others, like I said, though, which is produced by God in and through us, is what will establish our hearts in holiness before him. Now, I'm going to make a statement that God gave me, and I put it in my notes, and I can't wait to share it with you. He can't say, I never knew you, to someone he's been living in and through. He can't say, I never knew you, to someone he's been living in and through. There's a lot of people that know about Jesus who try to live a Christian life, who try to do the right things. They go to church, they, they, they tithe, they do all this stuff, who are going to hear, I never knew you. But he can't say, I never knew you, to someone that he's been living in and through. I want to challenge you to get to know him. Walk with him. Let him start to open your eyes to stuff that the preacher never said have you come to an understanding of who he is in such a way that you'll say, hey, that's really cool, Jim, but let me show you what God showed me today. And I don't know, I love all the, over the years how people have done that. And I'm like, I'm stealing that. That's awesome. But it was something God showed someone else through their personal walk with him. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. Now, I'm going to hit this fast, not because we're running out of time, but for the purpose of intentionally letting you see how pervasive, pervasive and prevalent what we're going to look at is in the Scriptures. First, it's 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally, then, brothers. By the way, I love Paul. He says, finally, and then goes on for two more chapters. I love that. Makes me feel so much better. As you've heard me say over the years, they say the definition of an optimist is a lady who puts her shoes back on when the pastor says, in conclusion. All right? <laughs> Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Again, if you read that and go, when's he going to give me a break? You still don't get it. 
For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul moves is challenging them to love each other more and more to a challenge to live in a way pleasing to God. And we're on to do this in increasing measure as well. And that'll happen as we get to know God more. But Paul gets very specific now, folks, in how we're to live in a way that's pleasing to God. He says, abstain from sexual immorality and learn how to control your body. By the way, did you catch that? It sounds like it's a process, right? Learning how to control your body and the passions of lust. By the way, what's one of the evidences of the Spirit that's tied to this? Self-control. Isn't that interesting? A fruit of the Spirit is self-control. How do we learn to control our body? We learn how to let our control of our body be taken over by Jesus. That's the filling of the Spirit, under the control of the Spirit. We learn how to say no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. That's a process, and you're going to learn that. So I want you to hear, though, and I want you to listen closely. I'm going to hit it really fast. I'm going to show you a bunch of scriptures that shows that almost everywhere that Paul starts talking about holiness, one of the big things he's talking to them about is sexual purity. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Verses 5 and 6. And I'm going to tell you in just a second why this is so important. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He's just finished saying, set your minds on things above, because that's where we're seated. He says in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Go to Ephesians 5. Look at verses 1 through 8. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Look at verses 16 through 21. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, under the control of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. There it is again. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you are going, I'm not feeling too comfortable right now. Go to 1 Corinthians 6. Look at verses 9 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And by the way, that includes women if you look at Romans 1. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then he goes on and he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. 
Food's meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his what? Power. Remember how we read that earlier? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You've been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now listen closely. I know that this is an area that most everyone in here struggles with in some way or another, and that is because we see it being mentioned over and over and over and over to the church, correct? Beware of those who deceive you with empty words, and especially in the day and age in which we live, where they're going to be preachers and teachers who say it's actually okay. Sexual sin is okay. Don't go there. Because if you live like this, and this is your way of life, you're not in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean you're not tempted. That's why he said such were some of you. That's why over and over he said to Christians saying, learn how to control your body. Say no to that stuff. Don't let something control you. And this is going to be an area where you're going to have to learn to lean into Jesus and allow him to give you victory. Give him the time and the patience to do what, the way he wants to. But at the same time, there's going to be a time, and it's already happening, where even quote-unquote Christians are going to say homosexual sin is okay and all these different things. And the Bible is very clear that it is not. You know why Satan, by the way, is going after manhood, womanhood, sexual purity with men and women, and all perversion with homosexuality? You know why? Because of God's creation and, as the Bible tells us, and Paul touched on it just a little bit here in 1 Corinthians 6, in Ephesians we see a mystery that's being revealed that hasn't been made known in other generations, is that the marriage reunion between a man and a woman is a picture of Christ and his church. And that's why Satan wants to blow it up. Oh, the Bible even talks about, back in Malachi, God's wanting godly offspring and Satan, as you know, if you know anything about the whole Satan's plan, because he knew that a seed of the woman was going to come and he didn't know who it was. Satan's been trying to corrupt the gene pool for years anyway. At the same time, Satan is actually going after God by attacking us when it comes to our sexual purity. The pure relationship of one man and one woman has been God's design all along. And most of us have fallen prey in some way or another to sexual sin. Don't get to the point where you believe the lies that it's okay with God over and over. He says, judgment's coming on the world because of that, and I warned you. Sodom and Gomorrah were judged because of sexual sin. We see all through the Old Testament, over and over, sexual sin dealt with harshly by God. And a judgment is coming on the world. And even though our nation and our government starts to say more and more, it's okay, and it's all right, and it's approved, and it's a government right, and all these things, listen... Don't become the judge of the people around you, but at the same time, don't get soft in this area. Satan is trying to win, and you need to know what the Word of God says, and you need to live that way pure for yourself, and let God take care of the others, but don't ever fall prey to those who come in and say, it's actually okay with God. Again, remember how we talked earlier about you hear something a preacher says, and it doesn't really fit with your spirit? Don't go there. He also said this back in First Thessalonians, uh, sorry, in First Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. And actually, verse 6, he says, don't transgress or wrong our brothers and sisters in this way. And he means sexually and sexual immorality. You already know this, but I have to say it. Your sexual sin will have an effect on many others when it comes to divorce, a loss of trust, disease, abuse. I could go on and on. Paul said, don't transgress each other when it comes to sexual impurity. I don't even have time to go down the road of the husband and wife relationship and how the Bible is real clear that wives should not be withholding sexual things from their husbands and husbands from their wives. And a lot of wives and husbands, I've never liked the whole you're sleeping on the couch tonight joke. I've never liked it. Never. Because it goes against the scriptures. The Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. 
that you'd never withhold sex from your spouse, ever, unless you both are in agreement for a period of time for spiritual purposes. It should never be used as a weapon or a tool. Don't transgress your brother or your sister in this area. Sexuality is something God made, and he made it wonderful and beautiful. Satan wants to twist it. Don't go there. Again, because of time, I won't have you turn there. But if you look at Jude, verses 3 through 7, Jude verses 3 through 7 talks about how these guys are going to come in and they're going to use the, the freedom we have in Christ to, to say sexual sin is okay. Galatians 5.13 says the same thing. 1 Peter 2.16 says the same thing. Don't use your freedom as an, as a, an excuse for the flesh. But I want to do in the time we have left, and we've got three minutes left, maybe four because that's a minute fast, is I want to take you to Romans 7. And eight, and we're going to close with that. And maybe 1 Corinthians 10, if we can do it fast enough. Romans 7 and 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. Romans 7, we'll start in verse 15. Paul says, for I don't understand my own actions. By the way, he's writing about his experience after salvation. You'll see that very clearly in here in the words he uses. I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability on my own to carry it out. For I don't do the good I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law. That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, body parts, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he answers his own question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now jump over to chapter 1. Therefore, there is now, con continuing the theme... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Paul himself said he still struggled with the flesh. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jump to verse nine. You, however, are not in the flesh. But in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There it is again. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Folks, listen closely. We all struggle with sin still. And if you say here, sit here tonight and say, I really don't, you're a liar. The Bible says the truth's not in you. But that doesn't mean we can just say, well, that's just the way it is and I'm only human. No, no, no. We have divine power. But God also knows that this is going to be a process. We have to learn how to control our bodies and allow the Spirit of God to exhibit self-control as one of the evidences of the Spirit. Because if I actually have self-control, I didn't do it. Paul said, I want to do right, but I have not the ability to carry it out. Oh, but he who lives within me, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And one of the ways that I can start having victory in these areas is to begin to learn how to walk daily, continually with Jesus. Go to 1 Corinthians 10. We'll do this real fast. I appreciate your patience, but I want to leave us off where we left off with Tuesday night, and this is something I really want you to see. In 1 Corinthians 10, we're just going to look at verse 13 because I don't have time. You can go back and look at the full context of all that. He gives a warning about those who experienced or at least knew about God's power and his provision, but they missed out on it. And they said that was written as, as, as an example and a warning to us. Then he says in verse 13, well, start in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed 
lest he fall. We need to lean on Jesus. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful and he'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let me ask you a question as we close. How come 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that whatever we've gone through temptation wise, you're not the only one. It's common to other other people. Don't let Satan lie to you and other people lie to you and say, well, you're the only one that struggles with that. No, a lot of us struggle with the same things. But he also said God won't allow you to be tempted with more you're able to bear. And with the temptation, he'll provide a way to escape. Why is God so active in my temptation when he doesn't tempt anyone? He wants us to what? You got it, David. You got it. He wants us to lean on him. He's designed this relationship that we would come to him daily. Why are we saved and born again and made anew in the spirit, yet we're still in these stinking bodies that are tempted to sin? Why are we still in these stupid bodies? Why can't we just go be with Jesus? He said, because I have a reason and a purpose, and I'm using you for my glory, and I'm using you as a witness, but I'm also trying to teach you how to come to me. You know, when your kids were little, they couldn't do squat. They couldn't eat without your help. They couldn't even find food without your help. They couldn't clean themselves from their messes. But what were the, one of the first things your child learned to do? To recognize your voice and look to you and do this. God says, stay children in that way. This such is the kingdom of God. Folks, I never want to come across like I've got this all figured out and I teach all this stuff. And boy, Jim, you must never struggle with that. No, no, please hear me. I need Jesus just as much as anybody else in this room, if not more. Because I'm under a lot of attack because of the role that I'm in. But I'm learning to spend more time with him. Not learning about him, but getting to know him. Let's keep doing this together and I promise you everything else is going to fall into place. I love you. We'll see you next week.